Welcome to the Whitaker Report, where we take a close look at the art and science of economic development. I am your host, Dean Whitaker, President and CEO of Whitaker Associates Incorporated. In each episode, we introduce you to leaders in the world of economic development. We speak with members of the economic development community to provide you with insight into the best and next practices in the profession. In this episode, we have as our guest, Carl Dye, President and CEO of Tridec. Carl is a Pacific Northwest native who graduated from the University of Idaho. He has extensive background in sales, marketing, management, and public service. As the president and CEO of of Tri-City Development Council, TRIDEC, Carl leads collaboration and facilitates regional economic development for Benton and Franklin counties. For 60 years, TRIDEC has leveraged creative leadership, federal advocacy, and focus on economic diversification to lead the TRIDEC region for the future and speak with one voice for the entire Tri-City area. He lives in Benton County with his wife, Tiffany, and their children, Jet and Henry. Please join me as we welcome Carl Dye, President and CEO of TRIDEC, to the Whitaker Report. Thank you so much, Carl, for, for taking the time today. And I'm, I always enjoy our conversations that we've had over the years. And I'm very interested in your thinking about what you see coming uh, and also how you see the economic development organizations responding to some of these things. And obviously, climate change has been one of those issues that's come up from time to time. And what do you see happening in your, in your part of the United States out of Washington relative to climate change? What kind of things are occurring? Yeah, we, so in our state, in Washington state, the states, I would say, has been very uh, proactive on trying to manage carbon change. Our, our current governor, uh, Governor Inslee, uh, ran as a Democratic campaign uh, candidate in um, 2020, and his platform was climate change and carbon reduction. And so he, uh, after he dropped out of that race, and he was already our governor, um, he's followed through on a lot of programs. So we have uh cap and invest program that's similar to california we have low carbon fuel standards so the regulatory environment in our state has changed and in economic development we see that as an opportunity uh one other trend that we see that is a develop that is an opportunity for economic developers we think is that uh, markets are starting to drive the same decarbonization so not only in our state a state regulatory environment and obviously federally um, you know, there's there's not maybe as much changes in the regulatory environment as there are incentives from from uh, federal departments like Department of Energy uh, that we have a close relationship here because of some of our entities that have been here uh, around 80 years. But then also, uh, you know, as the opportunity, the, the markets seem to be desiring products and services that people can show that they're uh, lowering their carbon footprint. Um, you know, here we grow a lot of irrigated potatoes that get turned right directly into French fries and other potato products that are exported around the world. And uh, you would be surprised that, you know, uh, retailers that we can think of or food companies that we can think of like McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, that want to see what are your greenhouse gas emissions, what's your carbon footprint, going all the way back to the ground and the soil that, it's, uh, that the potatoes are grown in. And so we see that as an opportunity. And we've tried to align some of our 
economic development strategies along uh, those lines so that we can ultimately fulfill our mission, which locally is diversifying our economy and then also creating the jobs of the future to keep our economy strong. What are, uh, what are some of those jobs of the future that you're thinking about? I, you know, it, when we look at uh, decarbonization in general, there's going to be more jobs uh, in energy sectors here locally. So we're, we're big proponents of nuclear, especially advanced nuclear power plants. Um, so essentially when we say advanced nuclear, there are changes in the way that the plants are built. They're smaller and modular. The components are built in factories instead of scratch built on site. And so there's opportunities for new factories building uh, nuclear power components, and that could be anything from heat transfer pipes, steam, steam pipes, uh, reactor vessels, all the way down into turbines, electrical generation that do have to cross over to existing commercial industries, um, but also in manufacturing. And so I think the, the trend that we've all seen in manufacturing away from uh, direct labor and into more automated and robotic technologies um, those jobs of the future will be more in programmable logic controllers and uh, essentially high-tech technicians and mechanics that can kind of take that old manufacturing sense of a job as a millwright and apply it to new modern technologies, including computers and uh, sensors and things like that. So we, we see it kind of in both of those areas for sure. Yeah, I think the sensor category is an interesting one. I've, I've wondered about that for a long time because you think about what's been happening to computers and that is they're becoming more aware yeah. of their environment. So now we've got computers that can listen. We've got computers that can see. we got computers that can hear. And I think there's also one now that they're working on that can smell. Wow. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Where we're headed with well, the I think That's a great point. I think the the internet of things, you know, IOT that we don't hear as much about today, but four or five years ago, it was a lot bigger issue, but like the way that those sensors work together and talk together and network and feed back into the computer itself is changing over time. And obviously, you know, 5G applications instead of hardwiring things can use 5G wireless technology and sim, um, signals. I think that's all part of it. How it's the most efficient and the most cost-effective way to do a better job and be more efficient in your manufacturing is a bottom line for everyone. I'm very curious um, when we spoke earlier about electricity and what I've been noticing in, in many major cities now is the lead time on getting service by some of the companies looking for a location has now been extended out beyond two years before they can plan on having electrical service. And then there's also kind of a scramble on now looking for large manufacturing facilities that have closed in order to see if the if the available power that they were using is still available at that location. So there's kind of a little scramble going on in that regard. What what do you see? And, and what what's your thought about this whole issue of how do we supply the electric power that, that's going to be needed? Yeah. No, it's a, needed? it's a great question. What what we see is is um, the industries that are working on decarbonization, um, you know, be it transportation fuels, or uh, we have a project we're working on around fertilizer or, um, you know, electric vehicle batteries, um, grid scale storage batteries to back up renewables. All of these things need large electrical loads. And so 
because it's around decarbonization, they're also more selective on where the power comes from. So they want to be many cases green or you know not emitting power sources. And so that narrows the field even more. And then I think uh, your example of looking for existing closed down plants that have, you know, that were big electrical users before, a lot of that's the infrastructure. So the transmission lines, the substation, the transformers that, that you can get the power in there because what we're seeing is uh, depending upon what you need and the voltage that you need in transformers, there's a two to four year wait um, for that supply chain. So I know we've, we've seen supply chain shortages because of COVID uh, as a nation and consumer goods, but on you know these large industrial electrical components, there's an even longer lead time now based on the demand. And I think based on the supply chain too, a lot of it has been outsourced overseas. I don't know that there's as many US manufacturers in large transformers uh, you know, electrical power lines, switches, you know, at, at high voltages, things like that. So I think both of those things are probably driving what you're seeing on the existing plant and then also on the, the type of electricity and the amount of electricity that, that uh, these companies and these site selection processes that are going on that we see. I've been wondering about it because it, it feels like when we deregulated the utility industry, and we separated generation from transmission, that we've kind of gotten out of sync. You know, one, one organization says, well, that's sure. the other guy's responsibility to generate the electricity. Our job is to distribute it. And then the, the generator said, well, that's not our job to distribute it. Yeah. That's another guy's job. And so we're seeing kind of a disconnect. Have you seen that? Or am I? No, you're right. You? And I think that it comes down to where you live and who your power utility is. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think very generally in every state, there's kind of two categories of power providers. So the investor-owned utilities, which are the private companies that are that are regulated, their rates are regulated by like state agency um, that regulates all utility rates and, and power structures. And then you have uh, public power. So in our case, luckily we're all public power and all of our public utilities who have elected boards and they set the rates, they're not governed by the state utility commission. Uh, buy their power from our local uh, power marketing, federal power marketing agency, which is Bonneville Power Administration. And so, you know, kind of an analog to uh, Bonneville Power Administration is Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA, and BPA. Both of these agencies came out of the New Deal, essentially here in the Northwest. It started with the creation of Grand Coulee Dam and, you know, in the, the uh, Tennessee Valley area, it was a similar hydroelectric projects that were for fully flight control and electrical generation. So, um, you're right to an extent, but it sort of depends on where you're at. If there is a separation in between transmission and generation and, and providing the electrical service to consumers and to industry. Um, but I, I think that in different parts of the country, that's one of the challenges that we face is that the grid uh, has regionalities to it. And so the grid itself, which is kind of governed by these entities that both produce electricity to go onto it and then take it off as well as federal regulation, um, you know, it's a really, really complex situation and it kind of depends on where you live. And so when you're doing site selection for these big projects, you almost have to be an expert in each state and each region and understand like where, where's power going to come from. And I think for, uh, EDOs like ourselves, we have to become more knowledgeable in it so we can be, do a better job of, uh, working with site selectors and attracting the companies and figuring out how are we going to deliver that power and the transmission that they need. 
one of the things I noticed uh, on the whole issue of power grid, I had a chance recently to work on a solar farm, uh, location for a solar farm. <laughs> we looked at multiple states and and the driver behind it was, what do you do once you yeah. produce the power? You know, we were looking at large tracts, like 2,000 acre yeah. tracts of land, which is one, one condition. And the second one was at least 134 kV line with capacity on it to be able to accept yep. the power that comes off of, of yeah. the solar farm. And so that kind of woke me up to, to realize the issue is you have to have the capacity within the grid to be able to absorb that power that you're producing. And so, and that was a whole nother uh, filter uh, that when you put that filter on top of the 2000 acres of land, you come up with four yeah. places. <laughs> and and then when you go to, <laughs> when you go to those, those <clears throat> excuse me, when you go to those four places, what you find out is somebody's already been there yeah. and optioned the land <laughs> because it doesn't take too much smarts to be able to figure out, hey, this is an opportunity. Let's go. Let's go option that land uh, that's where these things are going to end up. So interesting. Yeah, situation. it is here locally because we have a Department of Energy um, cleanup site. So we made plutonium to win World War II, and then to go on to win the Cold War. And it's a, I think it's the largest cleanup site in the nation here locally. But uh, just recently, Department of Energy has come up with this concept called cleanup to clean energy. So, you know, they have uh, the site here at Hanford is about, I believe, 580 square miles. It's a huge site. Yeah, so, oh, wow. so some of the land that was never used or, or you know, hasn't been um, used for production and is already clean because it was never, you know, used for production, they've announced that they would be willing to lease up to 17,000 acres of land. And there's a lot of interest in that and probably, you know, the, the most amount of interest is uh, for solar development because of what you said and but there's not that many places that you can go and lease that much open ground um, because of Bonneville Power Administration like we said we also have a lot of transmission lines that intersect the site and go across the site so there's opportunities to get it out um, but you know from our perspective when we're working with uh, industries clean industries to come in you know, no one wants power that is only available when the sun shines or the wind blows. They need 24-7 availability. And so, um, you know, California faces this, and I wouldn't be surprised if Texas faces it a lot, too, just because of the amount of renewables that they have. But in California, they call it the, the duck curve. So, you know, they have an overabundance of power. In fact, they have to curtail power development during the day when the sun's shining because they have so much power. But what, from a consumer standpoint, people come home and they turn on their TV and they do their laundry and they do their you know, dishes and stuff. They need power after the sun goes down. And so at that point, then they don't have all the surplus power, then they're kind of at a power shortage. And so matching that, those renewables of solar or wind is a real challenge. Um, you know, battery technology on a grid scale isn't really there yet. There's gravity technologies that I think have opportunities to be able to do that, but um, you know, to really make renewables work, you need a long-term storage solution that can take that surplus during kind of the day or when the wind's blowing and then store it up for long periods of time and then let it back into the grid over a longer period of time. Those are the ones that really create a more reliable and uh, sustainable grid. And so, again, going back to nuclear power, we're big advocates for nuclear power because it, 
it's a thermal production source that would be analogous to a coal plant, a, a combined cycle natural gas plant, like, like you were talking about before, Dean. And it's predictable. You can turn it on and off. It can balance renewables, you know, shaping, they call it, uh, for renewable electricity. And so that we think that there's more opportunities in those areas uh, because solar, well, it's, it's clean. We don't have a solar supply chain, solar panel supply chain. We're still relying on China and other countries like that for where solar panels come out of currently. And then from a land use perspective, it's real challenging, like you said, to find like 2,000 acres or 1,000 acres or 300 acres that you can cover up with solar panels that maybe isn't being used for something else like agricultural production, um, you know, kind of balancing out that land use. And then here locally, we have many Native American tribal partners that we work with closely and they have many uh, cultural and culturally sensitive and heritage sites that, while it may not look like anything other than some desert out there, it's something that they're very sensitive about, you know, the siting of any type of development on those lands. Even if they don't own it, there's this traditional connect connection to it. So, so in our case, those are some of the challenges around renewables and solar. And I'm just telling you a story to say, like, it's a really complex issue. It's, there's no easy solutions or answers. Very interesting. I didn't realize how yeah. complex it is. You know, it's uh, going to keep us busy yeah. for a while, I think, trying to solve that one. We, we talked, uh, touched briefly on on the uh, issue of, of decarbonating, decarbonating the um, uh, energy sources that we're using. What do you What do you see happening in that regard? Uh, <clears throat> I think that there is a challenge in how fast do you do it and how do you do it? And I think just being practical um, as a nation or as regions or states, we need to be practical in, in the approach to transitioning. And you know, fossil fuels, including coal, including natural gas are a big part of our base now. And I think as we work on transitioning it, we need to make sure that we keep those options open because I think the goal over time is to reduce the carbon and you know while minimizing the impact to our economy and that that's the challenge i think in our state in washington i think too far or we try to get too far ahead of ourselves and we start to ban things like natural gas uh, before we're ready for it before there are technologies that are viable that can make sure that we have the same reliability in the grid because ultimately it doesn't matter who you are where you live everybody wants the lights to come on when you turn the switch and we all want on the mm -hmm. hottest day of the summer that our air conditioner works on the coldest day of the winter that we stay warm and you know those i don't know that we have at the scale that we need that we have technology ready to do that so i, I think those are huge things that we could get better at and we need to be more realistic in as, as it comes to planning and then policy that drive a lot of those plans you see anything in terms of uh, taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it? Do you see anything in happening yeah, along those I, lines? Well, yeah, I, the Department of Energy has put billions of dollars into available grant opportunities to be able to do that, and that's those are those are proactive grants that can go into new projects. But even uh, from the, I think it's the Inflation Reduction Act, the tax code, uh, the IRS is working on the rules and regulations right now. But there's pretty big incentives through uh, tax credits. For corporations to um, capture or and or long-term sequestration of carbon uh, from their corporation it you know it's mm -hmm. something around 40 45 dollars a ton 
in a tax credit that for some companies could be very, very lucrative. And the question is, is what do you do with carbon dioxide? And a couple of local things that we're really excited about are we have uh, companies that are working on e-fuels that are essentially hydrogen carriers and they, they create um, hydrogen carriers, formic acid is one of them that's scientific formula is H2CO2. So they take potentially captured carbon dioxide and water through an electrolysis project or process and create H2SO2, which is formic acid. And then it's a uh, much easier liquid form to transport. Like you could get it to where you need it and then you could pull the hydrogen back out for some of these uses that we're talking about. That That's an opportunity um, that, that we see uh, as, as good opportunities out there. The other one locally is that we sit on a large uh, basalt bedrock formation that goes back millions of years. And basalt here locally, it's kind of got solid layers and then porous layers. And what they found is that if they inject it uh, like 3,000 feet below the surface, the porous layers will uh, take the CO2 that when they inject it, they take it to about 1,500 PSI. It gets in the supercritical state, which is kind of a semi-gaseous, semi-liquid state. Um, in that porous basalt, it actually has a chemical reaction. So within 10 years, the CO2 uh, turns into a rock um, that combines with the basalt. And so it's trapped. I think what we've been told, again, I'm, we're not scientists or chemists or anything, uh, but in sandstone formations, which would be more of the Midwest or more of the, you know, the uh, oil producing regions like in Oklahoma and Texas, for instance, that when you push carbon dioxide down below, you have to cap it someplace because sandstone's very porous. It can leak back out. You don't want it to come out. So I think there's going to be some real opportunities in that sequestration market, even the CO2 transport market, which could be pipelines. It could be, you know, barges and rail cars and things like that as as I think industry figures out how to monetize some of these tax credits and then some of the grants, I think we'll see a lot to do with that. The, the, the federal government's obviously planning to spend money and to give money or to save money in incentivizing ways to do that. Very interesting. Well, I've got to broaden out our, our discussion a little bit more um, and, and thinking a uh, little, well, more broadly, um, you're really pretty active locally in terms of uh, gardening and the economic gardening, and I know that you've had work in that area. What, what's happening in your in your area relative to economic gardening, and what do you see coming up? Well, I think in economic gardening, I think every region in the country has opportunities with economic gardening, right? I, I think in my experience, because I've worked in smaller markets, I've worked in you know it's the biggest market that I've worked in. Our MSA is three hundred thousand people. Um, so we have opportunities on kind of the alternate or the other part of economic development, which is attraction or recruiting. We have more opportunities here than smaller markets where I worked in. I think uh, every market has opportunities for economic gardening and obviously entrepreneurship, supporting entrepreneurship, encouraging entrepreneurship, teaching entrepreneurship as much as possible if that's the thing that you can actually do. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs aren't necessarily taught, they're, they're kind of made, they can either make it uh, on their own or not. But I think as a community, providing support for entrepreneurship is is really important. And that doesn't matter if it's uh, retail or, you know, a restaurant or an amenity for your community. Because I think there's really a crossover between economic development and community development, no matter how big your community is. You know, if you don't have a community that people want to live in, 
you're never going to be successful in economic development. Mm -hmm. So that community development um, is really a big part of it. And I think based on the size of the community that you're in and things like transportation, infrastructure, you know, across the board, all kind of the variables in economic development, economic gardening for a lot of communities is our best opportunity. You know, if somebody grew up in a small town and they want to go back, they want to start a business uh, that would that would be kind of a local business, that's an opportunity to create a few jobs. And ultimately, some of them may grow into larger companies that may actually export a product or service. And, you know, as they grow and they're successful, hopefully you can retain them, that they don't get bought out or sold out to somebody else. That's it's kind of always a challenge. But I, I think economic gardening is, you know, obviously one of our building blocks of economic development for sure. Very cool. So stepping a, a little bit further back and thinking about uh, three to five years from now, where do you see economic development headed and how do you see it changing? I I think that, um, you know, to your point about the solar farm, I think that's a good example, you know, and, and not that like we're going to get built out and not have land that's developable, but I think that in the next three to five years, uh, we may look more uh, as far as recruiting and, and development of new sites, look more at, you know, redeveloping old sites, more of a brownfield. And obviously that's a part of the sector, but, you know, I think that uh, for environmental reasons, for, for regulatory reasons, for even decarbonization and transportation reasons, along with infrastructure, I think there's going to be, you know, more opportunity to look at what we've already got developed and redevelop that. Uh, versus kind of just this expansion into uh, agricultural lands or surrounding lands around uh, cities and, and those types of areas. So I think that could be a potential change. Um, I really think decarbonization is going to stick with us. I think that there's a growing understanding, especially amongst younger generations, the Gen Z and millennials that are coming up, uh, seem to be way more in tune with, I want to do something that is larger than just me and my career and my family. I want to do something that's going to give back and is going to do something for, I guess, in this case, the planet, right? People around the, the world. And so uh, looking at, at climate change, reducing carbon, I think isn't just a trend. I think it's going to be a definite direction. And there's a lot of opportunity, just like we've discussed in economic development, something that we need to be aware of. And, you know, from each individual uh, professional practitioner's basis, saying what are our opportunities for our region to you know, be a player within this decarbonization effort. You mentioned the millennials and some of the, the younger people coming up, the, the Zs. Um, what, do you, what do you see them doing in the field of economic development? Are you seeing them enter that field or are they shying away from it? Or what do you, what are you seeing? I, um, I'm not sure. I, my feeling or my guess is, is that um, you know, the interest from their perspective is maybe more specific into that. I think economic mm -hmm. development is, you know, obviously you can go and get certified through IEDC um, and, and get that experience and knowledge through kind of a training program, or you can kind of go out there and, and learn it and learn about industries and, and communities and everything that you need to know in economic development and do it. Um, I think for younger people, um, it's an opportunity just like every other industry out there, but I, I'm not, I guess, that close to it to see that there's an emerging trend. I think it's it's a great industry to get into if people are interested in it, but I, my experience in economic development has been one that it's very hard to explain. You know, it could be something that 
uh, could include everything that people could be working on, or it could be very, very specific. And, you know, the one thing is that I've never met a, a elected official that doesn't like economic development, but there's very few that can really describe what it is or in their, their region or their sector or their jurisdiction, what it means. Very interesting. You've been very kind with your time today, and I appreciate it. And if uh, you don't mind, we may loop back to you in the future and kind of see where things are again. But uh, Carl, thank you so much for taking your time today. And um, I do appreciate your willingness to to chat with us. Give us, do you want yeah, to finish Dean, up? Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. It's always great to uh, share ideas with you. You know, we really appreciate the service that you provide to our uh, economic development organization and be happy to follow up with you in the future. Thank you for listening to this Thank episode you. of the Whitaker Report. And a special thanks to Carl Dye.